Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in live to Canada's most irreverent talk show. It is April 21st, Thursday, and I think we're at about 3.01 p.m. Eastern time. So traffic and weather will be coming up momentarily, just like my old uh, radio days. It's good to have you aboard what's going to be a bit of a packed program. We'll be talking to Barry Cooper later on about Quebec wanting more representation despite a shrinking population. Also going to be talking about the United States indefinitely extending its closure of its land border to unvaccinated foreign nationals, including that means unvaccinated Canadians, which combined with the indefinite vaccine mandate for Canadian air travel means uh, people in this country who are unvaccinated are still effectively trapped in Canada. So we'll talk about that later on. But I I first want to do something we don't get the opportunity to do, which is go to a a live guest on the road as as we speak at this exact moment. You may have seen footage of this man, James Topp, a 28-year Canadian Armed Forces veteran who has been marching west to east across this great country, starting in BC. I I believe if we can put up the map now, I'm going to get his confirmation, but you can track his journey at canadamarches.ca. And I I believe he's somewhere on the Trans-Canada Highway just west of Balgoni, Saskatchewan. And my apologies to the people of Balgoni if I've mispronounced that. Uh, James Topp joins us now literally from the road. Uh, James, good to be with you. Thanks very much for coming on today. Is that, am, I, am I correct on that? You're on the Trans-Canada Highway in Saskatchewan? That's correct. We're actually east of Balcony now. We're on our way to Capel, uh, Saskatchewan. Okay, so you're making uh, quite a bit of ground here because uh, I took that screenshot, I think, about uh, 15 minutes or, or so ago. How much are, are you covering every day on this journey of yours? Well, we were a little bit slow at the start because we were getting into our condition. It was a conditioning phase physically. And um, now we're up to about 50 kilometers a day. Uh, But the the terrain here is more conducive to that kind of thing. And uh, I know that (laughs) we've had a a fair bit of uh, bad weather in the last few days, certainly in Ontario. I know in Alberta as well. So uh, it's not necessarily the pleasant spring jaunt you might have anticipated, but it looks like you've dressed for it at least. Yeah. Yeah, we had some interesting weather experiences on the over the last couple of days. So so what is it you're doing? Why are you walking? This isn't just about fitness for you. You're trying to make a point. What is that point? Uh, well, the reason why I'm, march- I'm marching, so that's a distinction that needs to be made because I'm marching with a purpose and a formed body of people. And uh, we're there. We're going to complete a mission. And that mission is, this is a, there's two things. Well, actually several components of this mission. So number one, um, I transferred from the regular army to the reserves in 2019. Uh, so I basically went from full-time army to part-time. That enabled me to pursue a career in the public service as a um, civilian with the RCMP, uh, where uh, I had a great job working in Chilliwack, British Columbia. Oh, we've... Uh... We've lost James's audio there. Well, uh, James, do we still have you? 
Okay, we, we don't have your audio, James, so we'll have to get that uh, reconnected here. Uh, once uh, my, my producer will work with you, and we'll, we'll try to get that sorted out, and once we, uh, we get you back on, we will. Uh, because what I find fascinating about this is that you, you see, and I, I want to hear the end of that story here, but just from other bits I've seen of, of James's story and of what he's doing here, the whole point of what we are seeing now is ordinary citizens rising up, and I don't mean that in a derisive way, but, but people rising up because they feel that the problem facing society, facing them as individuals, are, are not being solved by government. And, and this was a big part of the thrust behind the Freedom Convoy. You had a lot of people who were, and we'll talk to James about this, were as individual truckers, activists, social media people just saying, we, we've had enough. And that was born of an appetite for someone to do something because the people that are elected to solve these problems weren't doing it. The people in the Conservative Party weren't opposing the government. The people in the government were certainly uh, putting more barriers on, on people that, rather than taking them away. And I think that's been the tremendously significant part that we're seeing in, in just basically this era in Canadian politics. I, I think I, I see we have James again. We'll try to get him back on, and hopefully the audio's been uh, sorted out here. James? Yeah, can you hear me now? All right, I can hear you, I can hear you now. So uh, when, you, when we lost you, you were telling us about what this mission is that you're on. Yeah, so uh, basically, I was placed on leave without pay for my public service job. I'm still employed in the military as a reservist, and uh, the mandates affected me because, um, personally, I have strong feelings about disclosing my medical status. Uh, number two, uh, I don't feel that the government has the authority uh, to tell me how to be healthy and what I need to do to be healthy. So that was my issues with uh, with the mandates that that affected federal government employees because I pushed back on that I refuse to disclose my medical status um, I was placed on leave without pay back in November and then I was informed by the military that I would be released on an item 5F so are you still hearing me? Yep I can hear you and what is that item 5F? So an item 5F is a inability or unwillingness to uh, change a behavior and my behavior was uh, not complying with the chief defense staff direction on vaccination. So um, that is a threat that has been uh, hung over the heads of a number of Canadian forces personnel. And I don't think it's uh, widely known in the public that this kind of coercion is going on. So basically, in the federal government, you have comply or you lose your paycheck. Um, what happened to me personally was that... Uh, it affected me deeply psychologically and uh, I was kind of in a state of despair. I do receive a pension from my regular force service and um, that pays my mortgage, but I need to supplement it. I end up getting a job as a tow truck driver in Hope, BC, where I live. And what ended up happening was uh, I came to the, uh, I came to realize just how hard the Canadian public is working out there. And it's the Canadian public that is paying for the federal government, which was in turn paying my paycheck. <clears throat> and it was what uh, allowed me to pursue a career in the armed forces for 28 years. So uh, I saw protests going on. I saw a group of people coming together to voice the same concerns I had. I saw them in Ottawa and it inspired me. And at the same time, I was outraged by their treatment. And now we had a federal government that was not willing to listen to its own population 
not even willing to entertain a, a, a dialogue of sorts. So, And when, when the people you're referring to there, you're talking about the convoy protest, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, let me ask you then, James, because that convoy brought thousands of people to Ottawa, truckers, non-truckers, vaccinated, unvaccinated. And even with that showing, the government didn't relent. They didn't drop the vaccine mandate. So uh, with all due respect, why do you think your march, which is a a lot smaller, it's you and a small group there, not hundreds of trucks. Why do you think this is going to be the thing that can make that difference? Because what I'm hearing now from a lot of veterans, uh, they're supporting me on this and they have plans to meet me in Ottawa. So my this isn't just me marching to Ottawa to announce that, you know, I've arrived. I'm not going there to throw a tantrum or, or call people names. I'm going there with a purpose. And the purpose is to reestablish communication with the federal government so that I can remind them who they work for. Why is it going to make a difference? Because I have taken um, uh, pages from the, uh, the convoy strategy and, you know, kind of you know, and talked it over with some folks. How can we make it different? So we're engaging right now directly with members of parliament through letter writing and emails. And we are getting responses from them. And we are asking them to come and meet with us when I arrive there in, uh, in near the end of June. Yeah, now obviously you, you don't know, I mean, you, you said earlier you're doing about 50 kilometers a day. There, I'm assuming you're going to have good days and bad days, so you don't necessarily have a precise arrival time, but you're expecting to be there by the end of June? I don't, but I have what's called, back in the day in the military, we have an NLT or a no later than date, and I want to get there no later than June 30th. So that means um, whatever happens between now and then, um, I have calculated that, it's doable as long as I can achieve that between 40 and 50 kilometers a day and then take appropriate rest days when necessary. So the thing is, that gives the members of parliament now plenty of time to try to mull over this and think about the optics of what it's going to look like for them to ignore a veteran and a group of people who feel the same way including the veterans that are going to arrive in Ottawa to meet me, what the optics of that, um, ignoring that type of peaceful protest are going to be. The treatment of, I mean, the treatment of truckers was obviously the, the force and the spark that galvanized the trucker convoy. The, the veterans, I saw a lot of veterans that were out in Ottawa and veterans that were supporting the, the convoy movement because, in my view, veterans are very similar. And I'm not saying that the sacrifice that veterans have made is similar, but the dynamic is similar to the essential workers dynamic in that, on one hand, you have people in government saying, these people are so great, we need to support them, we need to be grateful. And then on the other hand, you have these punitive vaccine mandates that for active duty soldiers and uh, people like yourself, reservists, that are, are just saying, you know what, all of the stuff you've done doesn't matter if you're not going to disclose your, your medical status here. Would you say that, that the support from veterans has been as strong as you'd like it to be? Or do you think there are some people that are still saying, yeah, you know, we had to do... Because again, the, the military has a number of vaccine mandates that are required depending on duty. The COVID vaccination is just one more, the government has said, in defense of it. Sorry, so the question is, do, do I have the support from the veterans community? Well, the, the, que- the question is, are you, are you confident that you have a lot of support from veterans? Or do you think that veterans are divided on that? I am. I, I, I'm hearing from them. Number one, I only need the support of one veteran. And that's uh, my best friend that I'm going to hopefully be meeting near Winnipeg. 
to be honest, but um, I, the veterans who I have to talk to as part of um, the, they are forming a new group called Vets for Freedom. Um, and this is, uh, these are folks who are directly involved in the protests earlier this year from the veteran community. And um, they're, they're, I'm hearing from the founders and directing um, board, the board of directors from that organization. I'm in contact with them. They're, they're in support of me. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that um, I'm going to get the support from the veterans community that, that I need because I think this is where we're at in this country is it's going to take the veterans to stand up to kind of show the rest of the country how it's done. Where are you staying along your journey? Yeah, uh, we are getting uh, accommodations from folks who open their homes to us or they arrange for us to stay in uh, like a town hall or a church basement or they're putting their funds together to get us into a motel or something. Uh, when this originally started, I had thought this was going to be a kind of a one-man show and I would be able to self-finance. But as uh, there was obviously a need or a response for this kind of activity, and I'm, you know, this has become a lot bigger than I had imagined with the group I have on the ground with me, there's nine of us right now. Plus, I have a bunch of uh, online volunteers managing the website and social media. So just to answer your question, that's where we're staying. And it's been a demonstration of the generosity of Canadians. And uh, their support and encouragement has been the driving force in this because I wouldn't have made it this far, this fast, without the ability be able to put my head down at night on a mattress yeah and is anyone allowed to walk with you or do you have a, a pretty organized group oh no i get folks like weekdays i get it you know folks are got they got jobs and they got commitments but during the weekends um interested people will show up like uh, like in a sawyer's british columbia for example um, I think we had about 20 or 30 people marching with me for about, you know, a good 20 kilometers. And that's, that's the kind of, uh, the, you know, folks who are interested in, you know, just showing up, marching for a day or a few hours. Like I got uh, Dennis here. He's from the area. He's uh, also volunteers and helps us with the management of online activity. So he's going to be here for a couple of hours just before we got online. Um, a dad, um, a fellow named Ram and his dad joined us for a couple of kilometers. So anybody can join in as long as they realize that we're moving pretty quick and they're appropriately dressed and they have some way of getting picked up when, they're, when they get tired out. 
Yeah, try to do uh, try to do some laps around your uh, your city block first, just to make sure you can keep up with them. I I'm even looking right now and impressed at how much even while you do the interview, you're uh, you're moving along there. Uh, you can track uh, James and learn lots more about his journey at CanadaMarches.ca. I know you've still got a, a couple of months left uh, on your way to Ottawa, but I, I appreciate so much you doing this and taking some time with me today, James. Thanks very much, and, and best of luck. That's your problem. All right, that was James Top marching to Ottawa with a very similar message to the message that the Freedom Convoy brought. And, and again, he, he's not being explicitly political in that. He, he's talking about values that are, are supposed to be above politics, things like freedom, things like patriotism. If you look on his website, he's talking about the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And as I mentioned at the beginning, and as I'll, I'll talk about very shortly in this show, as of today, it is still there's still no end in sight for when unvaccinated Canadians will be allowed to leave the country. The U.S. uh, restriction on unvaccinated foreign nationals has been extended indefinitely. Earlier this week, Justin Trudeau and the Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra would not give a a deadline at all for when unvaccinated Canadians would be able to board planes again, which means even if there's another country that doesn't have a vaccine mandate or testing requirement or whatever, a Canadian who's not vaccinated has no way of getting there. And, and that's a big problem in a country with a charter of rights and freedoms that guarantees the right to freely enter, remain in or leave Canada. But again, as we've talked about on this show on a number of occasions, we, we simply don't have uh, a basic and fundamental respect for a lot of the, these core freedoms. So uh, thanks to people like James for taking a stand. And we'll talk more about the U.S. border restriction very shortly. But I want to pivot to uh, an issue which, again, some people may think is a bit inside baseball, but is very significant when we talk about representation in this country because Quebec is right now facing a bit of a demographic challenge. Its population is sagging. A big part of that has been because uh, Quebec is is basically uh, enacting policies that force a lot of English speakers out. They're restrictive towards immigration and less people are are coming with the French language as, as their mother tongue. But even in spite of that, they want more representation in the House of Commons. So less people, more influence, which in a population-based House of Commons makeup doesn't seem to make sense there. There was a great piece about this in the C2C Journal. Cal Surprise, Quebec wants more seats in the House of Commons, that is. It was written by University of Calgary professor Barry Cooper, who joins me on the line now. Uh, Professor, it's good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on today. You bet, Andrew. So, I mean, the basics of democracy in this country, fairly representative in nature. Why is it that Quebec thinks it has a justification for more representation? Well, uh, this actually goes back to a period before Confederation. Um, it goes back to the to the period of the Act of Union in 1840. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, although we never talk about this, this was basically a... Uh, a kind of mainstay of British imperial uh, domination of uh, uh, other other people in the the overseas empire. Um, then the argument was that there were uh, two founding races, as they call them, uh, French and English, uh, which is ridiculous. Canada was not founded; it was created by an act of the imperial legislature. Uh, it, the Americans might have they can make a case for a founding because they had a revolution. We never did anything like that. Um, but the argument was essentially political, that if you had a, a French and a, let's say, non-French, since they weren't just English, there were Irish and Scots and, you know, heaven knows what else, um, as, the, as the founding peoples, uh, then that had to be represented somehow. 
Uh, it was it was certainly not a democratic uh, idea, which uh, was one person, one vote, or what back in the 19th century they called representation by population or rep by pop. And interestingly enough, uh, in the early days, uh, Quebec, or uh, what was then Canada uh, East, um, had a larger population than Canada West, or lower was bigger than Upper Canada. Uh, so they were quite happy with, with representation by population, but uh, in the in the decades prior to Confederation, uh, what's now Ontario became more populous than Quebec, and then suddenly uh, we had to have uh, this kind of ethnic uh, equality, uh, and it's been there ever since. It's something that seems to have obsessed Laurentian Canada uh, from, as I said, before Confederation. It's never made much sense uh, in this part of the country, but uh, uh, you know. Not much in this part of the country makes sense, I think, to Laurentians either. So, there, you know, there we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, going back uh, before the Act of Union, you had uh, Lord Durham's report and that famous line of, of two nations warring in the bosom of a single state. And in a lot of ways, we haven't moved much beyond that, it feels. Well, certainly not in your part of the world, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, these, these kinds of, of uh, statements, and they were, if you actually look at, at uh, some of the some of the remarks that I quoted in that C2C piece, uh, it, it's for normal democratic Canadians, I would say it's incredibly offensive. Um, what these uh, Quebec politicians are saying, we are really, really special and we don't want to give up one little bit of power. And, it's, and it was all about power. It was really clear uh, from when they were criticized about what about the democracy? What about Rep by Pop? They said it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the percentage that we have now as a founding people uh, in this country, um, none of which makes sense uh, to uh, at least not to Westerners. Yeah, and I think the important takeaway from that is that Quebec doesn't view itself as one province of 10. And, and every other province would see, even if there are some regional blocks like Atlantic Canada, like the Prairies, every other province sees it a, itself a, as being one province in 10, whereas Quebec doesn't. And I, I think that's a key part of the problem here. Yeah, no, absolutely it is. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is why, um, well, a few years ago, Dave Bergeson and I wrote this book, uh, Deconfederation, Canada Without Quebec. And it, it was, it was, pretty clear what the argument, I mean, it's in the subtitle of the book. Uh, we ended it with uh, a nice French phrase, bon voyage et bon chance. And uh, it was, it was uh, not received well um, in Quebec, uh, particularly uh, uh, by, um, by Francophone Quebecers. Uh, they, they could not believe that, you know, these two rednecks from Alberta said, uh, you know, bye. Uh, do what you wish. Just don't involve us in your uh, undemocratic uh, special uh, status requirements because we're not interested. Let's talk about the political response to this here. And I, I want to make sure I'm getting the facts right here. But the Bloc Québécois put forward the motion to uh, reject, quote, any scenario for redrawing the federal electoral map that would result in Quebec losing one or more electoral districts or that would reduce Quebec's political weight in the House of Commons. So even if everyone else went up and Quebec stayed the same, they would object to that because of the relative proportion. But what's astonishing is that the Bloc, the NDP, and the Greens all voted unanimously for this, as did the Liberals, and a lot of Conservatives, though, also voted for it. 
Yeah, it's and that's why I think it was it was chiefly a regional uh, division. Uh, there were some Western conservatives who voted for it, uh, and they were people, so far as I could tell, anyway, uh, who thinks that um, uh, the kind of Laurentian focus of the Conservative Party is, should be the the most important part. Uh, there were enough. Most of the dissenting uh, uh, votes in the Conservative Party were were from the West, uh, and it's it was a kind of instinctive. Um, response, you know, there goes Quebec again. You know, they just want more stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, quite frankly, I think a lot of Westerners are kind of fed up with that. So explain to me where this goes from here, because I, I think there's this general fear that a lot of people have of of a revival of, of Quebec separation uh, or separatism and, and Quebec secessionism. And I think there's probably an increasing number of people in the left that would say, as you say, bon voyage, just, you know, OK, get get on with it already. But but no one wants a country that that's significantly divided uh, if that division's coming from Quebec. I think Western alienation is probably attracting a lot less sympathy from the Laurentian elites. But but where do you think this goes if Quebec doesn't get its way, or do you think that it's a given it will? It, well, they've already got their way. They've they've got uh, this is going to be the law, uh, and um, the, 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 I suppose the question is is, is who what the the next conservative leader does um, about this, uh, and particularly if the conservatives form the next government. Um, that will be very interesting to see. Uh, I suspect uh, since. In order to object to it, in principle, you have to be willing to face down or face up to uh, the implications with respect to the independence of Quebec, or eventually, you might even say the independence of uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan. You know, it's 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 a very divisive uh, matter of principle, uh, and it's it's one that is I don't think is going to go away. Uh, it'll be papered over for a while, but you know, after a while, even the paper gets a bit thin, and you can see through it. What strikes me too, uh, Barry, is that it's self-reinforcing because you have the Conservative Party, notably, which always has these delusions of, of a restoration of, of some significant uh, Quebec coalition, which it never manages to materialize. But the more seats you have in Quebec, the higher the stakes are of not kissing the ring of, of Quebec politics and Quebec politicians. So, and, and that is, again, just very cyclical in nature. Yeah, it's 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 really quite interesting, and I I would say that this uh, uh, follows directly upon the the various Laurentian myths uh, that you know that I've written about elsewhere. But that that how this is the center of the country, and uh, as uh, Sir John A. Uh, himself said, uh, the Northwest and Rupert's Land are quote our crown colony. Uh, that attitude has not gone away in the hundred and fifty odd years since Confederation. Uh, and it's particularly a problem uh, when Western Canada has not only an increased population, but a, a much greater uh, wealth and, and resources uh, than it ever it ever had in the past, even though it was certainly the source of a lot of wealth for Canada through grain and through, before that through the fur trade. I don't know if you you've delved into this in in any substantive way, but but what are what are the internal migrations that we're seeing in this country? Because I know in the U.S. there's been a lot, especially in the last few years, of of people fleeing New York and California for lower tax and ultimately more conservative jurisdictions like uh, Texas and and Florida. Do we see it as starkly in Canada and and for the same reasons? Well, we did before uh, the uh, Liberal Party uh, made its uh, so far fairly successful attack 
on the resource economy of particularly of this province, but also Saskatchewan. Uh, and then COVID messed things up too. But there, there was a, an enormous amount of in-migration to Saskatchewan and Alberta, uh, not just not just from uh, uh, Ontario, but also from uh, from the uh, Atlantic Canada. Um, I mean, for a while, uh, they were saying that that Fort Mac was the largest uh, Newfoundland uh, population in the world because there were so many Newfoundlanders uh, who were working there. Uh, I'm not sure that that's uh, that that's true anymore, since the oil sands have had had an awful lot of uh, damage done to them in the past couple of years. So, and and demography. I mean, Quebec is just not seeing the growth. Uh, and we've talked about, you know, well, we've talked about immigration, birth rates, another factor. So, they they are facing. I, I wouldn't say it's a demographic crisis, but they are they are facing a challenge that's not really with an immediate solution. So, I just holding on to their political influence is, I guess, the counterbalance against that. Yeah, that seems to be the um, um, the kind of default position. When you are losing on the on a regular playing field, then you play the political card. Uh, it's certainly true that uh, that Quebec is under a lot of uh, stress uh, demographically, uh, partly because of their their uh, let's say not exactly hostile but not entirely welcoming uh, position mm-hmm. with respect to immigrants, uh, and the the effect of, of uh, Quebec nationalism. Uh, it always has the, the consequence of, of driving fairly productive members of that province uh, to, uh, let's say, happier, uh, happier places. Well, it was a fascinating read in the C2C Journal. Kel Surprise, Quebec wants more seats in the House of Commons, that is. And, and I, I've said it many times, Barry, I'll say it again. I think more columns need to cite the uh, 1840 Act of Union. Uh, you didn't slip Lord Durham's report in there, but I made sure to, to for the interview here. Uh, thanks very much for coming on. You bet, Andrew. All right, Professor Barry Cooper from the University of Calgary. No, it was a, a fascinating piece. And, and again, we, we talk about separation and separatism as being the these big things that Quebec used to use as the trump card. And understandably so. No one wants to see the country just completely ripped up. But again, the capitulation only seems to go towards Quebec. When you have Albertans that are raising quite significant grievances and everyone's like, oh yeah, they're just a bunch of angry rednecks. Oh yeah, we don't need to care about them. And, and I, I say Albertans more broadly, it's the West. I mean, Saskatchewan, most of BC. I, we, we often think of BC as being Vancouver and Victoria, but uh, the bulk of British Columbia, as far as land goes, and, and uh, even a lot of the population is not in that, which is why if you look at a map of BC politically, conservatives do quite well there, just not in, you know, the lower mainland and the uh, uh, and on Vancouver Island and, and so on. But uh, some parts they do. We'll uh, talk about this more, and I'm actually headed out, as I'll uh, share a little bit more about at the end of the show, to uh, Calgary just, I think, like, in about an hour, actually, I'm leaving. So I got to uh, race off the race off camera, pack, and, and then go. But before I do, I went long with uh, James, and then I had Barry lined up, so I didn't get a chance to talk about this as much earlier. But uh, what's happened today, there was a bit of uh, hope, I think, this morning, when people saw that the United States' ban on unvaccinated foreign nationals entering through its land border was set to expire expire today at 11 59 p.m 
So folks were looking and being like, wow, is, is an unvaccinated Canadian finally going to be allowed to cross the U.S. border legally by land as of tonight at midnight? And that means you could essentially have access to the world because the U.S. doesn't have a vaccine mandate for air travel. So if you were a Canadian who's not vaccinated, you could drive uh, across the Windsor-Detroit border, head on over to Detroit-Wayne County Airport, hop on a Delta plane, and you'd be in Amsterdam before you know it, and you'd have the whole world at your fingertips. But of course, that did not last. The U.S. sent out a fact sheet today through the Department of Home Se- Homeland Security, uh, which you can see on your screen there. As of Thursday, April 21st, DHS will extend COVID-related land border entry requirements. Non-U.S. travelers seeking to enter the United States via land ports of entry and ferry terminals are required to be fully vaccinated and provide proof of vaccination upon request. This applies to non-U.S. travelers who are traveling for essential or non-essential reasons. So there's that old uh, trucker mandate. Doesn't matter if you're a nurse, a doctor, if you have a, a visa that puts you in a category of essential worker, if you're there because you want to go visit grandma. Doesn't matter if you are not vaccinated, you cannot cross into the United States. Now, I will say that I know of Canadians who have gone into the U.S. who are unvaccinated because it hasn't been asked or they haven't checked. So I'm not saying you can't do it, but technically the law as it stands says you cannot. Now, I will say I'm a big believer in countries having the right to set their own immigration policies. I do not have a right to say that the U.S. is wrong. Well, I, I do have the right to say that the U.S. is wrong, but but I as a Canadian do not have the right to demand entry into another country. I have to respect those countries' rules. I can criticize my own country which I do quite a bit because Canada's immigration policies, Canada's border restrictions on unvaccinated people, I think quite significantly are the cause of these U.S. policies. Remember, the U.S. closed its border in response to Canada closing its border. And even then, you could always fly into the U.S., Even when the Canada-U.S. land border was closed for, what was it, a year and a half, you could get on a plane if you were a Canadian and fly to Florida if you wanted. And in doing so... Canadians actually had more rights to enter the United States than the reverse because no American tourist could fly into Canada when the border was closed. And it wasn't until August of last year that it only opened to vaccinated people. So right now, if you're an American, you still can't go into Canada as a tourist or an essential worker unless you are vaccinated. So all of these U.S. policies, I think, are responses to, are retaliations to Canadian policy. And, and we know that the Trudeau government and the Biden government have been very tight on a lot of these things, like the trucker mandate. But even if I don't have a Trump card and I don't have the right to say to the U.S. that you have to change your policies because I, as a Canadian, think you must, I will point out that this means Canadians who are unvaccinated are still trapped in their country. If you are an unvaccinated Canadian, you cannot drive into the U.S. legally, technically, If you are an unvaccinated Canadian, you cannot get on a plane in this country. You cannot take a commercial ferry to go somewhere. You could technically canoe across the Atlantic. You could technically canoe across the Pacific. If you really, really wanted to, you could probably swim and make it to Japan uh, sometime around when James Toff is going to end up in in, uh, in Ottawa. So technically, you could say, well, no, 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 there's nothing technically stopping you from leaving. Well, when government closes off your means of travel, 
Let's not talk about swimming across the Atlantic and the Pacific as being viable options here. So Canadians, despite a constitutional right to enter, remain in, or leave Canada, are not allowed to leave Canada. And, and let, let alone, by the way, travel internally. You can't very easily go from St. John's, Newfoundland to, uh, oh, I don't know, to Vancouver, to Victoria. You, you could do it. It's going to be tough. You could do it, though. But it's not practical. Maybe, maybe the best way to go is to uh, take a ferry to St. John's. Then you can uh, canoe from St. John's to St. Pierre and Miquelon. And maybe you can take an Air France flight from uh, St. Pierre to Charles de Gaulle. And that's your way out of the country. But again, th this is facetious because the whole point is the Canadian government is restricting mobility rights internally and externally for Canadians. And there's no end in sight for this. So we talked about this a little bit on Tuesday's show. And that day, Justin Trudeau and Omar Al-Ghabra came and said, well, we're going to continue listening to the science. We, well, the science. How is your science different than every other country's science? How is your science saying that we need to keep denying people the right to move? When every other country is not just reducing restrictions, but eliminating, obliterating them. Uh, Uber Canada, I think this week, said that masks are no longer going to be mandatory in Canadian Ubers. But, you know, you get on a Canadian plane and the mask is there. So is Uber using shoddy science? Are all the provinces that are lifting vaccine mandates, are they, are they using the wrong science? The, the most lockdown happy provinces, places like Ontario and British Columbia, they're getting rid of their vaccine passports. They're getting rid of their mask mandates. Why is their science different than Teresa Tams and Justin Trudeau's and Omar El Gabra? Show us this science. Show us this mythical, mystical science, which is about as real as Quebec's claim to deserve more seats in the House of Commons. It doesn't exist. It's the politics of fear. But it's beyond that, because I don't even think that Justin Trudeau thinks COVID is a threat. I don't think Justin Trudeau thinks that COVID is an issue. I think he actually just despises the unvaccinated. He just despises and holds in such contempt people who are not vaccinated. He, it's not about the science. If it ever was on a lot of these restrictions, which is a big if, it certainly isn't now. It is about punitive measures. He, he doesn't want to give a single win to the people that made him look like an absolute fool when they camped out on Wellington Street in downtown Ottawa for three weeks. He doesn't want to give an inch to these people that prove just how poor a leader he really is. Because if he does, if he gives an inch to these people, it's going to prove that they were right. When the unvaccinated are either A, just getting out of this country in droves, or B, boarding planes that then have no subsequent issues, no uptick in cases, no uptick in hospitalizations, it will prove that the government was wrong, and they can't have that. We've got to end things there. I'm going to be out in Alberta this weekend at the Freedom Talk. I'll be speaking on covering the convoy. So a lot of the themes we've talked about on the show, but I'll try to put it into a, a neat little speech form and give some new material there. You can get information on that at freedomtalk.ca. And if you are in there uh, in person, do come out and say hello. We'll talk to you soon. Tomorrow, we've got a one-on-one -on -one interview with conservative leadership candidate Scott Aitchison and lots more of The Andrew Lawton Show next week here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.